Welcome to the greatest era of fake businesses ever. And Dollar Shave Club is all about the data. This is episode 47 of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, welcome to the greatest era of fake businesses ever. Did you realize we were in that era? I, I didn't think we left that era, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, this was inspired by what I thought was just an incredibly interesting conversation. This is from a podcast between our friend Peter Kafka from Recode, who's been on this show, and Gary Vaynerchuk. How would you describe Gary Vaynerchuk? Well, the way he was introduced, uh, I think uh, he was introduced as professional Gary Vaynerchuk, professional salesperson, right? So I guess, look, love him or hate him, and he is quite successful. That is what the guy is. He's a salesperson. He reminds me kind of of a digital Donald Trump. I mean, he says things oh, like, interesting. right? No, he said, I'm just speaking out loud. I mean, as far as I know, that's how everyone speaks. But he, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But <laughs> That's why I like the expression. And, you know, in radio, they have the expression for non-music content, they call it spoken word. And I thought, well, that's, <laughs> what other kinds of words? Sung words, you know? <laughs> so anyway, so here's what he said in this conversation. I'm gonna take from a transcript here. He started innocuously enough by talking about the value of brands. And I know you'll appreciate this. I do things because I think brand matters. I don't know why I bought these Nikes, but here's what I can tell you, Peter, that it wasn't because um, uh, a cookie uh, in a browser retargeted me and finally I gave up and bought them. I bought these Nikes because they beat me. They won the branding game with me. Mm. Now you got to respect that comment, right, Tom? <laughs> well, listen, I always look at where people are coming from. Like what's the intent behind the words? So he's been, he has smartly appealed to marketers' desire for online attention. I mean, he's been a pro at it. Okay, yes. But it, it appears to me that he's becoming a bit frustrated that he's not getting the big brand dollars, right? Mm. So, you know, and so instead of discovering and f the, 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 the desire of these people and feeding them what they want, he's ranting about it. That's why he said that if, if everybody was incentivized and selling shit, money would be in a different place. Yeah, let, let's talk about that for a second because this gets to what his rant was really all about. Was It, it was a frustrated rant about the system. It was really a rant about digital advertising mm -hmm. and the uh, presumably uh, low expectations and the strange incentives, or not so strange, but the incorrect, shall we say, incentives of agencies. Um, let's see, where do I begin in this thing? He referred to it as the big short. Um, and it was specifically with regard to digital. He said that uh, you have, uh, here's what he said, you have an enormous amount of people that are all going to gather in the south of France next week that have a financial vested interest in the monies not shifting to digital. There's a reason a couple days ago that the AMA put out a report of fraud in kickbacks of the media buying agencies and the platforms and media companies of the world because there's a ton of people that are allocating the money that are not doing it in the best interests of their brands. This is, this is your point. He called it the big short. Mm -hmm. Yes, people knew that there were rebates and deals being done. 
Agencies are hired by brands in doing things in their best interest, not their clients. That's a breakdown of trust. If everybody was incentivized, here's your point. If everybody was incentivized in selling shit, money would be in a very different place. But a lot of people would rather go to the CBS upfront, <laughs> see Kanye perform, go to New Zealand, shoot the commercial, get a ticket to the red carpet because the Grammys are on CBS this year, and decide to give CBS $40 million for TV commercials for their car brand because Sally or Rick wanted to go to the effing Grammys. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask does you a question. Does that sound frustrating to you? Yeah, it does sound frustrating. And it sounds kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe myopic. I mean, so he was wearing a pair of, of uh, what kind of shoes? Nikes. Yeah, and, and he bought them because why? I think his point is because the brand is bigger than any transactional uh, element digital or Okay, otherwise. and then the next question to, that we'd ask him is, how did the brand get like that? Mm-hmm. And it got like that by doing these big sponsorship deals with athletes, by running television ads, you know, by going by going to these awards ceremonies and, and, and palling it up with, with some of these social, you know, people that are that have the ability to influence culture. That's how it mm-hmm. got that way. Now, what's he asking? That that should all go away and we should just measure clicks online of Nike shoes? Well, I think that's the the puzzling thing, right? I mean, what do you mean by what works? If what works is a multivariate problem, if what works to sell shit, as he put it, um, is a, is a problem with numerous causes, you know, where there's a certain weight to TV advertising, a certain weight to digital advertising, a certain weight to who knows, outdoor, direct, whatever, then what does it mean to put the money towards what works. And why does he say that the big brands don't care about what works? He even said Procter & Gamble doesn't care. I mean, do you think that Procter & Gamble doesn't care? Uh, No, I know them very well. They they care. (laughs) Look, this this is what I'm trying to tell you. It seems to me, because this is what happens to everyone who becomes frustrated with reality. Instead of working with that reality, they rail against it. You know, I think it was the great, it was the educator, uh, Joseph Tussman. He wrote that what the pupil must learn, and we're all pupils in the marketplace, if he learns anything at all, is that the world will do most of the work for you, provided you cooperate with it by identifying how it really works and aligning with those realities. If we do not teach the world, if we don't, it will teach us a lesson. So Gary may be hmm. setting himself up for a big, to learn a big lesson about these big brands. Well, it sounds to me like what you're saying is life isn't fair. Things work the way they work, and you can either, you know, conduct your business that way or fight, you know, that reality, but recognize you're fighting reality, you're fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, look. And you're not likely to be successful. Or, and if your definition of success is capturing those big brands in your client yeah, portfolio. Yeah, look, I'm telling you, listen, Mark, a lot of what he says is probably true. So what? Do you think by saying that gambling is illogical that everyone suddenly stops gambling? I mean, I just returned from giving a speech in Vegas. I can assure you that's not the case, right? People are going to do what they believe to be true, what others like them are doing, or what gets regulated by authorities. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. It's that simple. He, 
he closed with some interesting points, and these I, I think are really interesting, and I certainly agree with them. He talked about how many people today are not building businesses. They're building what he described as startup financial machines. He said, from the day you raise your GD seed round, everything you do is predicated on raising your Series A to try to figure out what Sand Hill Road cares about. I'm taking out the expletives. To, to give, to give you, and, and then you reverse engineer those numbers, and you know that building a business unit, you realize you need eighty thousand users, you need this and this and that, and you're just building this machine just to get to the Series A. And he says, "I cannot wait for the Armageddon. This is going to put out ninety-seven percent of these fake entrepreneurs. They're not building businesses, my friend. This is the greatest era of fake businesses ever." So his point is that. All of these things are are built essentially for resale. They're they're built as investments to be bought by someone with a bigger stake who has a better sense of the value of what it is that's being built. Because in and of itself, it's a house of cards. Hmm. Well, look. What was it's your take? perspective again? I know a lot of people that are working really hard to build startup businesses. A lot mm-hmm. of them. And they're not building financial machines. You know, it, it mm-hmm. seems to me that if instead of him focusing on the next unicorn in the attention, digital attention economy, that's mm-hmm. where all the fake businesses are being built. So that's he true. could go support entrepreneurs that are actually doing the difficult work of adding real value to people's lives. But I'll tell you why he's not. This guy mm-hmm. is enamored with the attention economy. In fact, he's, what he says he does is plays the game of being the arbiter of consumer attention. Right, mm-hmm. that's his game. Mm-hmm. So if you put yourself in a game where everybody, it's kind of like, it's kind of like playing a Pokemon Go and saying, you know, they're not real creatures. No, they're not. <laughs> why? Why is that? Why does that confuse you? <laughs> oh, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, I think it's 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 interesting. I understand his perspective, and I think you know, it's funny that he is talking about unicorns. Um, and it is funny that we have a phrase uh, that defines something that is, uh, by, by definition, exist. Uh, imaginary. Uh, yeah, it's, it's mythic and imaginary. Well, listen, Mark, the whole... <laughs> and yet it's what everyone ascribes yeah, to Yeah, but be. look, it's built on a myth. And here's the myth. The myth. Attention equals sales. That's the mm. myth. You, but that's not Gary's myth. That's the myth of all advertising and no, marketing, no, but he's, isn't it? He's, he says he doesn't play that. He's not playing that game. right? Oh, he I says, see. I guarantee sales. Doesn't he? Uh, pretty yeah. much. That's, his, that's the white space between <laughs> attention and right? results. I guarantee sales. I, so you know what? Everybody should go do business with this guy. Everybody. Because they have mm-hmm. nothing to lose. If sales don't go mm-hmm. up, he gives them all their money back. Don't think he said okay. that. Okay, see, this guy is—he's another salesman in an agency who's skilled at selling attention and hope, hope, mm. not sales. You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Tom, Dollar Shave Club is all about the data. It wasn't uh, long ago, about a week, week and a half ago, where Unilever—we're all familiar with Unilever, international brand gets more than a name in Dollar Shave Club. That's the title of the article from the Wall Street Journal. And the idea is that they offered a billion dollars. By the way, you're going to hear the B word again. <laughs> I've got a, a rant on the, the B word. But they've, they've, for a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B. 
they're buying Dollar Shave Club, which we're all familiar with, kind of that quirky online direct-to-consumer, get your razors and blades with the funny uh, YouTube uh, kickoff <laughs> video. We're all familiar yeah. with that. They have 3.2 million members, which itself is not a lot, although I think it's worth noting, and you would know this better than I, that Unilever is certainly an international brand. They have a big footprint in the U.S., but they don't have a big footprint in the in the whatever they call the shaving right. space in the U.S. That belongs to Gillette, which is P&G. So the acquisition gives Unilever a foothold in the U.S. shaving market where Dollar Shave Club has been stealing share from P&G's uh, Gillette. More important, Unilever's decision to buy the unprofitable Venice, California startup. And by the way, the word that jumped out at me there, unprofitable. Yeah, I know. <laughs> For, so a billion dollars, unprofitable, Tom. I just want that to ring in your head for a moment. They must be a fake business. It, well, this is, it, all, it all comes back to that. It's a fake business. Gives it further ammunition in the war to harness a burgeoning wave of online data. Because here's the thing. Unilever is gathering data all over the world in an effort to go direct to consumer to essentially circumvent retail or recreate retail in their own mm -hmm. image. In some cases, there are, it mentioned, um, gosh, what was the country? One country where they have their own uh, pop-up stores and their own promotions, and they sell their own products in these stores, as well as other products, but they gather the benefit of all the data. And uh, apparently, uh, they, there was an interesting anecdote in here. They said the online data collection helped it to deduce that 2016 was going to be the year of the messy bun, a hairstyle in which women messily pile hair atop their heads. Unilever embarked on a guerrilla marketing campaign, paying or helping bloggers to create video tutorials on how to create the look, which incidentally used an array of Unilever products such as Tresemme, hairspray, and Dove Dry shampoo, and so on. So this the value perceived here is primarily in the data that the, uh, derives from this and their ability to create a toehold and to go direct to consumer, all of the above. Tom, what'd you make of this? Well, I, I think it's beyond data. I, so what I think they're really buying is a brand. Uh, and what I mean by that is they're buying a particular relationship with 3.2 million primarily men. It's a particular right. psychographic because Dollar Shave Club, so that nobody you know misunderstands what they did, it was an identity play and it was enabled mm -hmm. by digital technology. They saw mm -hmm. a need, a desire actually, by a particular group of people and they fed those people what they were hungering for, and they tied into that this identity, all right? This, the, like, look, they could never have done this before, especially competing mm -hmm. against P&G and Gillette. But they had mm -hmm. a platform like uh, Amazon Web Services, right? So it's pretty cheap mm -hmm. and easy to start an online business. They got YouTube, so they can do it, you know, right. easy to sh put up a video and share it. They have mm -hmm. Facebook, easy to spread the message around and cheap. Right. No one in the past, Mark, could compete with a good enough blade like Dollar Shave Club's doing because they mm -hmm. didn't have the money to invest in R&D. They didn't have the TV advertising, the, shelf positioning, the margins that the retailers are looking for to sell the razor blades. Right. But with the, but now we're getting back now we're getting back to attention, uh, Tom, because what you know, their ability to they can get this attention for free. This attention used to be very costly. I, I don't have right? a problem with that. But to see, the thing is, is once they got the attention. They delivered what people were hungering for. They, they got a cheap and convenient product plus right. entertaining content 
plus a direct-to-consumer business model, which captures email addresses and mailing addresses, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's what was going on. I mean, listen, when they deliver razors, you get, you know, your monthly delivery, you get like a little magazine, Bathroom Minutes. It's some comic pamphlet that gives Mm -hmm. you life and shaving tips. So they're trying to build on that connection that they've made with you. They're not just getting attention for attention's sake. They're getting attention to continue to add value to the perception of the brand and the identity of the consumer. Now, what, right? And then, and then they, they, the reality is that I don't know Unilever from a hole in the wall, but if I am a, a subscriber to Dollar Shave Club, I have a relationship with them, I trust them, and if they try and sell me other things that go with shaving, that are complementary to shaving that are congruent with my relationship with that brand, there's a very good chance I'll buy them and I'll buy them Now direct. you've got it. Now you understand why they're doing it. And I'll tell you, Unilever wouldn't have done this if they hadn't promised investors that they were going to get better at selling stuff online. And, and they certainly wouldn't have done it if they didn't have a deep-pocketed and really smart competitor in Procter & Gamble standing on mm-hmm. the sidelines, maybe willing to gobble up Dollar Shave Club before they can get their hands on it. That's true too. I know. Uh, I've I've seen. I think uh, a Gillette subscription platform that you know followed in the. It's kind of like the equivalent of the blockbuster yep. streaming online platform. Yep. <laughs> and my sense of it was, wow, is why would I want to do this? This is such a reaction to something that's original and fresh and different. Why would I want? If I want to buy something by subscription, why in the world? I might go to Harry's, but I certainly wouldn't go to Gillette. Yeah, listen, Dollar Shave Club used. The tools that, that Gary Vaynerchuk is, is advocating to use, but they mm-hmm. did it to create a deep relationship with 3.2 million members. That's mm-hmm. the difference between doing that and just spreading messages all over the place, trying to get attention. Good point. Time for rants and raves, Tom. What's up this week? Well, everybody's heard about it, but I, I, in case they haven't, and this is a combination rant-rave. But in case they haven't Mm -hmm. heard the big news that's flooding the media and it's information that should help improve everyone's life. You ready? Flossing your teeth is a bunch of bullshit. I heard that yesterday. Is that true? Well, here's the thing. So the federal government recommended flossing sometime in the late 70s. First, they did it in the Surgeon General's report. And later, they added it to the dietary guidelines for Americans. Now, here's the thing. Under U.S. law, those federal guidelines must be based on scientific evidence. So last year, now why they did this, I don't have any ideas. Like people don't have enough time on their hand. Last year, the Associated Press asked the Departments of Health and Human Services and Agriculture, they wanted to see the evidence proved to us mm. through the scientific evidence. And they followed up with a written request under the Freedom of Information Act. So now the federal government So they issued the latest dietary guidelines this year, and the flossing recommendation was removed. They didn't even tell anybody, (laughs) okay? (laughs) In in a letter to the the Associated Press, the government acknowledged that the effectiveness of flossing had never been researched at all as required. So Mm -hmm. this is bad news for the flossing industry, okay? This is a $2 billion global market. I think it's a billion dollars in the U.S., for a bunch mm. of string. And, but the good news is, for everyone else, this is good news for a few reasons. One, for those of us who hate flossing our teeth, 
and, and it reminds me of uh, that would be yeah, everybody. It reminds me by of the, the late comedian Mitch Hedberg. He said he hated flossing his teeth so much that he wished he had one long curvy tooth so that he didn't have to do it. <laughs> but more importantly, to me, this is an indicator, a pointer at a much bigger reality, and it is this: <laughs> much of what we've been told about in life is made up by somebody. It's invented. It does not pass scientific muster. So the mm -hmm. odds are on your side. If you stop doing everything that you hate to do and start doing everything that you love to do, you're probably going to be okay. In addition, <laughs> if you're confused by the pitches made by various marketers and salespeople, simply tell mm -hmm. them you'd like to sign a non-disclosure and then have a scientist go through all their data to validate their claims. <laughs> Otherwise, as far as I'm concerned, they have as much credibility as dental floss. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, who would have thought that there could be life lessons garnered from the story of the failures of dental there's floss? A lesson, I never would have guessed it. There's a lesson in everything. What, 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 what are you going to rant on? <laughs> well, I've got a couple of kind of, I'm not sure if they're rants or not. I guess uh, oh, maybe they're, ran, they're not raves. we're talking about. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I'll have to make a note of that. I've probably typoed that in the past. So I got a couple. Here's the first one. You know, of course, who Shane Dawson yes. is, right? Who I is Shane Dawson? I just, I just, I didn't, knew you I were going to say that. Sounds stupid. You see, a lot of people do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Shane Dawson is a is a famed YouTuber, right? And he's written two books. The second of which is now atop the New York Times bestseller list. And I was thinking about that. First of all, I thought, okay, he's written two books, which is probably two more than he's read, <laughs> and it gets right to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And then I was thinking, and you would know more about this than I, but I was thinking, you know, what does it really take to get to the top of the New York Times bestseller list? Is it really that remarkable? Because people are still, even the article is tied, the beginning of the article, if you thought the YouTuber book trend was a mere flash in the pan, think again. Well, who would think that if you really knew what it took to get there? You're gonna, and you might know these oh statistics. We pulled the curtain back on floss. Now you're going to kill it. On the New York Times. Now I'm oh, going to kill the New York Times right, bestseller list. So it turns out that you can get on the New York Times bestseller list if you sell 9,000 books in the first week. You can get on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list if you sell 3,000 books in the first week. Now, Tom, 9,000 books is not a lot in real terms. But when you factor in the amount of attention, take any of, of Shane's videos, they probably get 9,000 views in the first 15 minutes. So for him to translate a tiny fraction of that into book, sell, uh, into book sales is nothing. So I fast forward into the future, and I don't see why the, the New York Times bestseller list shouldn't be all YouTubers going forward. I mean, it should be the – they should retitle it the YouTube bestseller list because that's what's going to be – by the way, it doesn't even matter what the book's about. Nobody cares. It's just, you know, what's $20? It's another thing I'm, it's no yeah, big it's deal. It's another thing I'm trying to tell you that's hidden behind the curtain. Mark, I can't begin to tell you the, the number of consultants at big consulting firms who turned into an author and then had the 9,000 employees that work at the firm go out the next day and buy a copy of the book. Tom, I've got something better for you than that. <laughs> I happened to find there was a reference to what's called a book laundering firm. Oh. Have you heard no, of these? talk to me. You need to know about this before your book comes out, okay? You hire, and by the way, there's one located here in San Diego. You hire the book laundering firm. You essentially pay them most of what the cover price is, plus, you know, shipping and handling. And you write them a really big check, and they will buy all the books. 
and essentially launder the purchase, you know, in the traditional, you know, terminology for laundering money. So they'll essentially launder the money so that you can land at the top of the bestseller list while no one actually has to buy the book but you. You know what's cheaper than that? What's Just that? Just put on your blog, New York Times bestseller. Nobody ever checks anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, here's my other rant. Um, the title from Business Insider, and again, here's where the billion dollar thing comes back again. SoundCloud could sell for $1 billion. What? Now you think, wow, SoundCloud, that's amazing, you know, because SoundCloud is obviously hugely successful, which is why someone would want to buy it for a billion dollars, right, Tom? Yeah, I guess. So this is, but when you read the text, a billion-dollar exit would be a great result for SoundCloud's owners and investors. That A billion-dollar, just the terminology, a billion-dollar exit. The company has an estimated value of $700 million, and that, Tom, is based on the $70 million Series E's funding round led by Twitter Ventures that closed in June. So their valuation is based on the amount of money they were last able to raise, not based on anything <laughs> like, you know, what people are going to buy. Like and here's, there are a few reasons why SoundCloud could be looking to sell now. One, inability to compete head-to-head -head against rival players. Well, that's, yeah, how big a po problem can that possibly be, Tom? <laughs> Two, inability to drive meaningful ad revenues. Well, it's worth a billion dollars, Tom. <laughs> Why would we worry about ad revenues? Three, the company may lack a viable business model. Tom. That's why they want to sell now? We're being petty. Come on, they're worth a billion. And then the final bullet, financial woes persist. Overhead costs have been increasing much more rapidly than revenue with administrative expenses growing 70% in the year. I mean, but it's worth a billion dollars, Tom, and they're about to sell. That doesn't make Do you have any sense. Who ready? wrote that? <laughs> business insider oh my God. a vicar of truth in all ways do you have your checkbook ready no but i like i like this whole notion that i'm worth multiples of the debt that i'm in that's my that's my favorite yeah. <laughs> i didn't realize i was worth that much tom you're worth multiples of the debt that you're in you have no business model <laughs> your competition is overwhelming you your overhead is too high uh, you have no uh, viable uh, business model. <laughs> but, Your revenues but are man, trivial. If but man, I can exit with a billion dollars, I've got it made. <laughs> but it may be wise for you to exit with a billion now rather than I later. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. <laughs> we're, not, we're not hosted at SoundCloud anymore, Tom. I wonder why. It doesn't why. matter. We're going to exit and for a billion soon because... We're going to exit for a billion. Yeah, catch this show before we yeah, exit for up. a billion dollars. <laughs> Please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us, especially those with a billion dollars burning a hole in their pocket. <laughs> you can also catch us at art19.com, Radio Inc., Media Village, Net News Check, and the American Marketing Association. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Is Twitter worth a billion dollars? I don't know. Are they having problems too? <laughs> 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 Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged as long as Twitter's still there. And if there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to the producer of Media Unplugged, Jeff Schmidt. He really is amazing, oh, he isn't is. he, Jeff Schmidt? I love the guy. Exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt.com. Tom and I do. For Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thank you for listening. 